gospel reading this morning is from John 19, 17 through 37 on page 1076. This is the sermon text. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross Jesus, of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the gospel of the Lord. Just to connect a little bit what we're doing in here with what the kids are doing up on the second floor right now, we use a curriculum for our two in-service kids ministry classes, Busy Bees and Kids Club, called the Gospel Coalition or the Gospel 
um, project, the gospel project. And um, usually the lessons, just because of the schedule with that and what we do in here, they don't line up like with what we're talking about for our sermon series. But um, cool thing right now is that they do. So the same time we're talking about the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus down here, the kids are learning about the same thing upstairs. So Deb and Tara are teaching about um, Jesus laying down his life as the high priest right now. Um, and uh, so in kind of preparing these, I am a part of a Facebook group, because that's a, that's a thing, um, of kids ministry leaders that kind of collaborate together on Facebook um, that use the same curriculum that kind of troubleshoot things and think of different ways to teach lessons and pr- uh, prepare the activities and things of the day. And this past week, there's a parent that made a post on there, and uh, there's a kids' ministry leader of a different church, and she said that parents had come to her complaining that their kids are learning about the cross, that man, we just learned this in Easter. We talk about this every year at Easter. Why are we learning about the cross now? Isn't there other stuff in there that we can be learning about? And as I thought about how I might answer that question, I remembered a scene from one of my favorite books that I read in high school called The Life of Pi, which is by Jan Martel. Now, Jan Jan Martel is not a Christian, Um, And this isn't a Christian book, but it does explore kind of spiritual themes. And in the book, the main character, Pi, is kind of a, he's a a seeker. He's a religious seeker. At one point, Pi is um, telling a story about how when he was 14 on a holiday, he came across a church. And although he had never been in one before, he stepped across the threshold. Inside, Father Martin told him about the story of Christ on the cross, which Pi found very strange. Pi asked for another story. He said, one that I might find more satisfying. He didn't like the story of the cross as, as much. He thought it was odd. He said, surely this religion has more than one story in its bag. Religions abound with stories. They have lots of stories. Pi's a seeker. He likes hearing the stories from the different religions. But Father Martin looked at him and he said, we have no other story. We only have the one. He explained that All the stories that came before it, and there were many, were simply prologue to the Christians. Their religion had one story, and they came to it over and over and over again. It was story enough for them. I think that's beautifully true. And while I might say, you know, that the Old Testament is a little bit more than just a prologue, I do think that all of it testifies to and is fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the center of the whole thing. It's the, the central story. It's the story. Not only of the Bible, but I think that Christianity makes the claim it's the story of reality itself. But because that is our one story, and because we own that, right? I think we can sometimes become desensitized to it. There's a couple reasons that this can happen. We can begin to lose the awestruck horror and wonder and meaning and beauty of the cross. There are a few causes of that I can think of. Maybe like those parents in the Facebook post, we can approach the cross kind of with a yawning, isn't there other stuff we can be talking about? Isn't there other stuff in there? Or maybe we can 
kind of just start to feel a low-grade embarrassment of the cross. It's messy and bloody. The cross has always looked foolish, and it's always been tempting to Christians to be embarrassed by it, and it's always been the point at which the world has said that this is foolish. Um, the first drawing that we have of the cross is actually something called the Alexa Minos Graffito, and it was probably drawn by a kid from the second century. It shows someone um, in like a very crude drawing, worshiping at the foot of the cross with a man hanging on it who had the head of a donkey. We worship a crucified Palestinian Jew from the first century who we believe rose to life and will come back again. Feels crazy to say. And so maybe there's a temptation to kind of, you know, emotionally even distance ourselves from it. Let's focus on other stuff. Or maybe we can just start to assume the cross. We can kind of just assume the grace of God and the cross becomes an afterthought. Whatever it is, there's a couple, you know, many reasons that could be, I think that's a, that's a problem. That's a danger for us, becoming desensitized, not being able to really feel what's going on in the reality of the cross. And we find the need to become resensitized to it over and over, I think. How do we recover our, our spiritual nerve endings so that we can actually feel the reality of the cross again? I think that the best step is to look again to the words of life in Scripture that tell us about the man on the cross, who he is and what he did for us. So that's what I want to do together. In looking at this passage, how do we resensitize ourselves to the reality, to the wonder, to the horror, to the beauty of the cross? Will you pray with me for just a second that we can do that together this morning? Lord, um, many of us are coming in here cold. Many of us are coming in here and maybe the wonder of the cross at least feels numb. Maybe it has been for a while. For those of us here this morning that feel that, and for those of us here that do keep that up, but we need to be reminded, we just, we ask that you would be here. Give us a sense of yourself. Amen. Look with me uh, at John 19.17 if you haven't already turned there. So we've been walking together through John for a long time, right? And we finally come to the death of Jesus. And through John, I, I kinda, I'm, I'm going to compare John, the book of John, to a fireworks display where he focused, he spends a lot of time individually on focusing on these awesome things of Jesus, you know, so he says, Jesus is the bread of life, oh, look at how awesome that is, and, you know, Jesus is the living water, oh, look at how awesome that is, and the Passover lamb, he, he uses all of these Old Testament illustrations and all of these allusions to show us how awesome Jesus is, who Jesus is. But we're kind of, you know, we're looking through the Gospel of John, and we're, we're meant to focus on those things, and um, they're, really, they're really awesome. Oh, look at that. It's like when a firework explodes. But the end of the Gospel of John, now that we come to the death of Jesus, the passion, what, we're gonna, what we kind of see in the passage is there's so much here. There's so many different allusions. There's so many connections that have been made throughout the Gospel of John, and they're all culminating right here, like at the end of a fireworks display, where it's the, you know, it's the finale, and you're not meant to look at every single individual thing. I mean, you can, and we could spend a lot of time doing that, but I, I think you guys want to sleep in your own beds tonight. 
Um, so what we're going to do is instead of looking at each individual thing, which would be good, just don't have the time to do it this morning, we're going to look at the totality of it, this finale, and we're going to ask ourselves, who's the man on the cross? What's he doing? What is this passage showing us about who Jesus is and what he's doing? And hope that that can give us a little bit of a sense of the wonder of the cross this morning. So the first thing I want to draw our attention to is the inscription that Pilate orders. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Every gospel records this, but John spends more time on it than anybody else does. Um, So this appeared to be a custom that they would do when they crucified someone. They would put the charge that they were convicted of on a kind of title and put the title on the cross in a way that shows everybody else. This was a public execution, right? Everybody else, this is what happens when you do this. The Jews said, that wasn't his crime. His crime wasn't being the king of the Jews. It was claiming it. This isn't our king. Mike touched on this dynamic with Pilate and the Jewish leaders before. Um, and, uh, that, you know, so they're, they're in kind of this confrontation. And Jesus being a king was a big part of Jesus' prosecution. And the Jews ended up saying, they have, we have no king but Caesar. So why did... Why did Pilate write this? Um, Pilate did show kind of an affinity for Jesus at one point. Pilate's wife, this wasn't in the Gospel of John, but I think it's Matthew maybe that records that Pilate's wife actually had a a nightmare um, about Jesus. We don't exactly know um, what that nightmare included, but she sent word to Pilate um, that this this is a holy man. And so Pilate throughout kind of shows this, you know, he, he doesn't, it's not like he's on Jesus' side. It's not like he believes in Jesus as the Christ, but he, he kind of shows an affinity for him. Um, and so, you know, that, that could be a little bit of what's going on here. But ultimately, I, I don't think that Pilate at this point believes that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Um, but there's this kind of uh, a motif in the Gospel of John of people saying more than they mean. They say something about Jesus, and it's actually deeper and truer than they mean it to be. And so we have, um, like, the high priest Caiaphas, who says it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish, right? And that, that, that echoed way beyond what he meant it to. And John brings that out to show who Jesus is, and I think that's the same thing here, that John is highlighting this to say, Jesus is the king of the Jews. I'll call that kind of like a providential overstatement. God was in that and showing who Jesus is, saying something true of Jesus even though he didn't mean to. And the the king of the Jews, um, if you'll remember, in the Old Testament was one of the major themes throughout Scripture. So the first king of Israel was actually not Saul. It was Yahweh. He was meant to be king. God was meant to be king originally. He's the one who freed Israel and gave them the law. But as we see in the book of Judges, there's the refrain in the book of Judges in the Old Testament that they they did what was right in their own eyes, which means they were living wickedly, they were living sinfully, and there was no king in Israel. So it's pointing to this thing that Israel was so rebellious against God as a king that it brought up this need for God to give them a human 
king over them. And so Saul was king. Saul was declared to be unfit. David took over. He united the tribes of Israel. But obviously, um, if you've read David's story before, um, he has a lot of sin, a lot of wickedness in him as well. Um, and even through that, God promises David in 2 Samuel 7 that his throne would have no end. It would be an everlasting kingdom. He promises that to David. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon is wise, but towards the end of his life, he's accumulating wives and um, money. And then after Solomon, Solomon's sons, um, it all kind of fell apart. And Israel ended up... Um, splitting into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They both ended up getting displaced or destroyed. And so there's this lingering thread coming into the life of Jesus of how is God going to fulfill his promise that David's throne is going to last forever? And the answer that we find in the Gospels is that Jesus is, but not, he's going to fulfill the throne of David, but not just by being a king like David, but he's claiming a more ancient throne. He's claiming the throne of the original king of Israel, Yahweh. He is the divine king. And that's why Jesus said in the last chapter, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what this text and the inscription is ultimately saying. Who is this man who's on the cross? He's our divine king. Can you sense that? The glory in that? That that's the one who is crucified? Listen to what uh, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger says about crucifixion. He says, For hours, if not days, the victim would hang in the heat of the sun, stripped naked and struggling to breathe. In order to avoid asphyxiation, he had to push himself up with his legs and pull with his arms, triggering muscle spasms that caused almost unimaginable pain. The end would come through heart failure, brain damage caused by reduced oxygen supply, suffocation, and shock. Atrocious physical agony, length of torment, and public shame combined to make crucifixion a most horrible form of death. British historian Tom Holland, in his book Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, um, attempts to help us understand crucifixion. He says, it was the worst death imaginable, a punishment designed for slaves to maximize their torture and humiliation. He said, so foul was the carry-on reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. And that's what happened to the king of Israel, the second person of the Trinity. I want to be, in, be careful in making the statement that I'm about to make because there's a lot of Christological heresies to avoid on either side. But we can really say, in that Jesus is the divine king, in that Jesus is God, we can truly say that it was God on the cross. Last week I, I went to a conference and I got to hear John Piper preach on the name of Yahweh and explain it. And he said, that's what John Piper said, absolute being united with human being in such a way that when Jesus died, we can say that God purchased, purchased us with God's blood. The original king of Israel, Yahweh, with the only crown that he's wearing made of thorns and nailed to a cross. So that's what we see first. We see Jesus as our divine king hanging on a cross. What else is Jesus? Look at verse 23 with me. 
So in fulfillment of the scriptures, we see Jesus' clothes being taken from him and his seamless tunic gambled for. This is one of the main indignities of the crucifixion, to take the last personal items that he has. And we also see the people in this scene. So one thing to note is that John says that the beloved disciple is there. He's, he's at the cross, and that's almost certainly referring to himself. We've heard John refer to himself as the beloved disciple before. And he's not indicating that like he was more loved than the others. It was just it was a statement of personal friendship, intimate relationship with Jesus. And we also see Jesus' female followers there. So John is the only disciple present at the crucifixion, but every single gospel says that there's a sizable amount of female followers of Jesus at the cross. I think we hear, I mean, hopefully we, we, you've heard um, the significance of the women being the main witnesses at the resurrection, but sometimes I think we, we kind of overlook, overlook that they were also the main witnesses at the crucifixion, which is really important. So here we see Mary, um, Jesus' mother, um, and it, it says his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of, wife of Clopas, that can either be interpreted as these are two different people, or Mary, the wife of, wife of Clopas, is his mother's sister. I would interpret it as there was Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, um, because, you know, if you're a parent, you try not to name your kids the same thing, so it would just get confusing. Um, so, Mary, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, who, um, she, so she was the woman that was uh, freed of um, demons. I think it was, uh, Mark says, seven demons. Um, and she was also the first person in the Gospel of John to call Jesus Lord. So, these were all women that in their own ways were beloved followers of Jesus. These were his friends and family. The British apologist Rebecca McLaughlin in her new book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, says this, when he'd gone through the cities and the villages proclaiming the kingdom of God, they'd been with him. The, woman, the women had seen him heal and teach and cast out demons, and now they see him nailed to a cross, eviscerated in the public gaze. How do we see Jesus through the eyes of the many women who watched him being crucified? some who had been with him since Galilee and ministered to him, some who had come up with him to Jerusalem. We see him as the one they love, broken and mutilated, mocked and despised. We see the sign above his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We see the one on whom all their God-sent faith was pinned, now nailed to a Roman cross. We see him through their tears, but vitally we see him. This is an obvious point, but I don't want to overlook it. Jesus' torture and execution wasn't just some theological abstraction to these people. These were his friends and his family. Before they knew and loved Jesus as divine king, before they discovered the heights and the glory of who Jesus is, they knew and loved Jesus as their friend that they would have ate and drank and sang and played and worked with. He was the divine king, but he was also a personal friend to them. I was gonna, so, first we saw Jesus as divine king, and now Jesus is their personal friend. I was going to say human friend, but that sounds kind of like we're aliens that are talking about our recon missions on earth. So, he's our personal friend, and by personal, I mean person to person. That Jesus was a human, 
bodily present in relationship with these people. Jesus, in this very human moment, makes sure that his mom, who probably wouldn't have even been 50 years old at the time, was cared for by his beloved disciple, John, who he trusted to her, because in those days, you know, she, she needed someone to help support her. This happened as a, at a personal level with Jesus. Do you sense that a little bit? At the cross, we have our divine king, and we also have our personal friend, and that's the man who sheds his blood. We see next that the Roman soldier comes with a spear. Um, this is probably to make sure that Jesus is actually dead because they come by, his bones weren't broken. Um, and so the Roman soldier stabs him, and out comes water and blood. And I think there's two things that means, two, two ways that's kind of functioning here. One is to show that this is real. This, this really happened. Jesus really was dead. This wasn't a Gnostic thing, right? This wasn't a figurative thing. Jesus wasn't just pretending to be dead and then, you know, oh, I'm alive a few days later, right? This is, Jesus actually died. And we actually see that um, there's, there's a statement here. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Um, John could either be referring to himself, who was a witness to this, the only disciple who witnessed this, or um, we see other gospels, the other gospels attesting to a particular Roman soldier who crucified Jesus coming to believe at Jesus' death. It could have even been the one who drove the spear in. We're not entirely sure, but it, this statement could have also been about him. But ultimately, this statement shows that there are witnesses, and they're alive, and John is saying, they're going to tell it to you straight. I, I saw this. He was dead. And later, spoiler alert, comes back to life, right? These witnesses are attesting to reality. So that was one reason for the water and the blood. The other is to show what Jesus did in saying that it is finished. This isn't explicitly stated, but I'm, I'm going to do a little interpretation. I'll show my work to you, okay? So the water is interesting here because earlier in the Gospel of John, I don't remember if, I don't know if you remember the statement, but Jesus says when he's talking about the living water, he says, those who believe in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So it says out of his heart, and that is a good translation because of how they saw the human body function, but um, the literal Greek there says, out of his insides will flow rivers of living water. Water gushes out. Jesus above with his disciples below giving us living water. And then how does, how does he do that? What does that mean? Well, he does it by his blood. Blood is very bloody. You know, I mentioned this before, how the crucifixion, because of how bloody it was, because of how um, th this was, you know, this was an execution. It was a form of execution. That, that kind of makes the cross seem, you know, weird and antiquated, saying that Jesus needed to, to die, he needed to bleed for us, to, for us to be forgiven. Um, but ultimately, this is something that we see throughout Scripture, that um, because sin brings death, Sin requires death as a payment of, of, for justice. This is about justice, blood for blood. We, look, we see in uh, Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews 9, and kind of like uh, restating this principle in the Old Testament, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Kind of the, the undergirding idea behind this is that blood is a life source. Evil, when we sin, that threatens life. It brings death. And justice demands blood. Why can't God just forgive us? Why can't God just say, well, you're forgiven without this bloody crucifixion? Ultimately, I think that question Um, Even though it's definitely an understandable question, I I think it kind of makes some false presumptions about what forgiveness is. When you forgive somebody, even if it's for something small, somebody's got to eat the cost of what the wrong was, right? If you mess up, if you lie to someone, if that causes a a rip in the relationship, somebody's got to take that. When you forgive someone of something... There's always someone that's got to bear the burden of that, bear the burden of the wrong. So this acknowledges the holiness of God, the reality of our sin, and how God deals with the justice of forgiving sin. How does God, in His mercy and love for us, hold His love for us, His desire for us with His justice... Well, that's the cross. Those two meet at the cross. In the blood shed by our divine king and personal friend, Jesus, an excruciating means of execution. Seeing that, we should be resensitized to both the horror and the glory of the cross. When we are, what does that that do for us? Um, There's been a couple mornings recently um, where uh, Kuiper's woken up, and I I kind of, um, I've, I've been in a, a, a little season of um, just feeling anxious and kind of despairing. And um, I, I usually wake up, I, I try to wake up earlier than Kuiper, get some things done, um, and then I'll meet him at like the top of the stairs. So he'll walk out of his room um, when it's time for him to get up. I'll meet him up there, and then we kind of walk downstairs together. Um, and there's been a couple mornings recently where Kuiper's gotten up and he said, Daddy, can we read about Jesus dying? And before that makes me sound like a super Christian parent, like this ultimate, you know, discipler of my kid. Most of the times recently when he's gotten up, he wants to play Spyro on the Nintendo Switch, so we, you know, start the morning playing Spyro together. So it's not that. And I'm not really sure what's going on in his four-year-old brain, though it is an encouragement to me, you know, and a reminder that God is pursuing my kids, um, and God loves my kids, as I would remind you parents. But on the morning, the first morning he did this, we, we, you know, we did that. We, I took his um, story Bible out, and we sat down, and we read um, the, you know, the story Bible's representation of Jesus going to the cross and dying. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest, um, I don't think we'd gotten to that point in that story Bible before. Um, I'm not, I don't have a high expectation for, you know, these story Bibles, uh, because I usually, you know, it's like, Noah's Ark was, you know, a fun boat ride with zoo animals, and, you know, things like that. Um, but this, this representation of 
the cross in this Bible was actually pretty, you know, it was a, I think it was appropriate for, for kids, but it was still pretty graphic. I remember the first line on the story was, they beat him with their fists. And there was, there was just something about that that woke me up that morning. There was something about that, just kind of going off of what I've been talking about, that resensitized my soul to the cross. What was going on there? Uh, like I said, I, I went to a conference earlier this week where I heard some people preach, and I, I, I went to this um, session where there were four um, heavy-hitting, awesome, pretty well-known preachers. Um, one was R. Kent Hughes, and uh, sitting next to him was um, H.B. Charles, and sitting next to him was Thurman Williams, sitting up there, dropping some gold. Um, Thurman was a former pastor of this church, and he'll actually be preaching here in a couple weeks. And next to him was uh, a guy named, a pastor named Ray Ortland. And um, there was a question asked, uh, how do we, when, you know, when we're doing this here, how do we both look at the text and actually, you know, we're, we're digging into the, the text, we're, we're trying to understand the text on an intellectual level, but also how do we have a, a sense of God when we're doing this, this thing in church together? And uh, Ray Ortland answered and he said, I don't, I don't see a disconnect there. He said that the, the Bible, the text is there to give us a sense of God's grace. He said uh, there's a level at which we all suspect that God must really despise us. We have all of our inner thoughts and our fears and our shame and our hatreds and addictions and sins and sufferings and all all the stuff that, that goes on. And deep down, a lot of us suspect that God must despise us. And then he said, along comes a text that shows yeah, those, those places, everything that you've got going on, that's where God is loving you most tenderly. That's where he meets you. And I think that's why when I read this with Kuiper in the morning, it woke up and resensitized my soul because it reminded me in, in the cross, in the, in the suffering of our divine king and personal friend, we see Jesus meeting us in our sin. We see Jesus meeting us in our, in our sin and our suffering there with us. Jesus is not waiting for you at the back door of the valley of the shadow of death, saying, hey, I'll be here when you get out. He's walking with you. He's at the front door. He meets you at the front door and walks through the valley of the shadow of death with you. The violence of the cross, and it was very violent. It's hard even talking about that. And um, Nancy Hughes, who did all the awesome, um, who put up all the awesome banners that you see around the church for the anniversary today, um, she's putting up a new banner, and she asked me if I wanted the, the one of Jesus on the cross up there. And um, she said that it's really hard to look at, the banner that they have for Jesus on the cross. She said it's really hard to look at. But when we think of the violence of the cross... We should remember that the violence of the cross is a violent repudiation, a violent rejection of any suspicion that God despises us. 
Romans 8 says, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That should bring back a little bit of sense in your soul to what happened on the cross. And I'd invite you to ask yourself, what would it look like if in the morning hopefully every morning, at least some point during the day, what would happen to your life if in the morning you woke up and you were reminded of that? We become desensitized to the cross, but by looking at it, by looking at the blood shed by our divine king and our personal friend Jesus in the excruciating means of execution, we can become resensitized to the cross by God's grace and feel the warmth of God's love for us again. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we're humans, which means both that we're sinful and we can become desensitized to the cross just by our own sin and we can stop feeling the wonder of it. Um, But we're also uh, emotional people and our emotions go up and down everywhere every day and... um, God, it it can be hard to feel your love for us. It can be hard to feel your grace for us sometimes. But we we pray that we would grow in you, not just by our white-knuckling efforts day after day, but by being fed by your grace, by remembering what you did for us on the cross, and that you would Give us our sense of you back, our sense of the wonder of the cross back, and grow us by that. Amen.